Tonight, though, uh, this will not be quite as much of a let's discuss it. I do want to uh, get into something here. And I want to begin with a passage from a man named Sam Storm. He is a preacher, he is a theologian, and he wrote this statement some years ago that I found to be such a thoughtful uh, description of the angst that many Christians have. And so I want you to hear his words and see if you've either personally ever felt this way or if you've ever heard another Christ follower express similar sentiment. He writes this, Many Christians live in constant and paralyzing fear that they have committed the unpardonable sin. They are burdened and broken. They're grieved and terrified that some sinful habit they cannot break or some reoccurring transgression they cannot avoid will forever exclude them from the presence of God. Their confidence is shattered and their assurance of salvation is all but lost. Quick question. And, and, and although we're, this is a small gathering, just, just show of hands, how many of you have ever heard someone or maybe you've seen spoken of this thing, the unpardonable sin or the unforgivable sin? Anyone else in here grow up in the church of Christ like I did? Now, here's the reality. There's a lot of confusion when it comes to the topic of the unforgivable or unpardonable sin. But this is the passage that I couldn't get into this Sunday because of where we were. I, I just had too much to cover. And so tonight, I want us to unpack the next section in the account of Jesus' life from Mark's vantage point. So this is Mark chapter 3, verse 20 through 30. And the reason I want us to do this, and, and I don't know that it's necessary to go verse by verse in every section, but this is one that is so misunderstood and has created so much worry for some, and I might even say some have had no worry who might ought to worry, that we need to come in and, and maybe peel back the layers and see what is it that Jesus is talking about. Now, uh, if you have ever worried about this, by the way, I have worried about this. I remember uh, I was about nine years old, first time I heard of this, and I started freaking out because I started going, oh no, what are all the things I've ever done? And what got me worried was I could not remember all the bad things I'd ever done, and I was only eight yet. I hadn't like gotten really good at sinning yet. I've gotten a lot better at it now. And, and I just couldn't, and so I was like, oh no. So I remember I, I was crying. I said to dad, dad, I'm going to hell. He goes, excuse me? So if you've ever struggled or worried or wondered, I want us to kind of look at this together because I believe uh, there's some confusion about this. Now, a couple things here. This is also found, this is found in Mark's account in chapter 3, but it's also found in Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 12. By the way, if you have your Mark journal, uh, you may want to go to Saturday's page. I think it's page 51 or 2. Uh, that's just a blank sheet for you to fill in notes if you want to take a, notes sort of in, in, in chronological order this way from Sunday and this and so on and so forth. But Matthew's account will give us a few extra details, so we may dip our toe in there. But here's the bottom line. In this, Jesus is going to say that there is a sin for which there is no forgiveness. He is going to say that it is a sin that is an eternal sin with consequences, this is Matthew's language, with consequences in the age to come, meaning in the life after this life. 
And it's because of the gravity of Jesus' words that many Christ followers have been very, very afraid. Have I committed it? Am I not going to be with God forever? And so here's the question that we're going to kind of wrestle with tonight. And I hope at the end we'll all come away with a greater sense both of clarity and perhaps peace. But here's the question. What is the unforgivable or unpardonable sin? Now let's start with just a couple things. Look at what he says here. This is Mark chapter 3. And look down here in verse 28 and 29. We're going to give the whole context in a moment, but let's just get this first. Verse 28 and 29 says this. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. By the way, does Jesus always tell the truth? Absolutely. So when he says, I tell you the truth, he's not saying everything else I've said is a lie. Rather, this is the equivalent of a parent coming over to their child and grabbing their kid by the face. You know this move, parents? You grab them like this. Their cheeks kind of go like this. And then you get down so they can't look left or right. It's the idea of pay attention to what I'm about to say. So Jesus says, I tell you the truth, verse 28. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. So, the sin to which Jesus is talking is this one. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, this word blasphemy, if you want to give just like a little explanation, it simply means defiant irreverence. Defiant irreverence. That's the sort of just a basic explanation. And there's a lot of things we'll kind of unpack here. But let's kind of start this. What is blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Let's start with what it is not, okay? And I'm going to give you a list of things. You may want to jot some of these down. You may be able to, to remember them. This will also be on the podcast as well as video. But let me give you a few things that it's not. So in case you're worried, let me give you the nots first. One, it is not mere disbelief. It is not mere disbelief or unbelief. What do I mean by that? The sin that cannot be forgiven is not people who simply say, I don't know that I don't believe or I don't believe. Because, question, were we saved when we were born or were we saved when we chose to give our life to Jesus, church? Yeah. Now, now we can get into the whole question of what happens to children when they die. And, and by the way, spoiler, there does seem to be this, this innocence of children, okay? And we can talk about that. So don't freak out if someone has had a child die at a young age or something. But it is reality that none of us were saved until we chose to follow God, right? It's a choice, this is one of the reasons that we practice adult baptism, not child baptism, like, or infant baptism, because infants cannot make the decision personally to choose to follow God. Does that make sense? Okay, so mere unbelief, if, it were, if that were the unpardonable sin, then every one of us would be doomed because when we were born and up until a point, we did not believe, correct? So that's not what it is. It's a few other things that it's not. It is not any sin that is explicitly named elsewhere in the Bible. 
Blaspheming the Holy Spirit is not any sin that is explicitly stated elsewhere in the Bible. So let me just give you a list of these. So for instance, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, or the unpardonable sin rather, is not murder. You say, are you sure? Yes, I'll give you three names. David, Moses, and Paul. What do they all three have in common, church? They murdered someone. And yet... Moses met with the Lord regularly. David was a man after God's own heart. And Paul met the risen Savior on the road to Damascus. So that's not it. It's also not adultery. Now, these are, and the reason I mention these, these are ones I've heard people say are unforgivable. They have big consequences, but they're not unforgivable. Again, let me give you one name, David. Did he have an affair, church? Yep, and then what did he do right after that? Well, and then had her husband, you know, murdered. So, I mean, had the double, double effect there, right? All right, so it's not murder, it's not adultery. Here's another one. Uh, the unforgivable sin, I, I hear this uh, more from my Catholic friends. Uh, they'll say it's suicide. Have you ever heard people say that suicide is the unforgivable sin? And the reason for that, the rationale behind that, and I understand it, is to say it leaves no room for personal repentance. Because look, if you die, you can't repent, correct? Here's the problem. What happens if you utter a dirty word and you're in a fatal car wreck? Same scenario as suicide in that there is not a moment to repent. Here's the beautiful thing about the blood of Jesus Christ. We are told in Scripture that the blood of Jesus is effective in cleansing all of our past sins, our present sins, and our future sins. If it were not, we would have to be rebaptized every time we commit another sin. Correct? So, what this means is, and we can get into, and we will get into suicide at some point at our church, because this is a growing reality in our nation, and we need to understand it. We also need to speak hope to people who are in dark despair. But that is inherent, not necessarily an unforgivable sin. Let me give you a couple more here. Even denying Jesus is not an unpardonable sin. You say, oh, wait, 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 wait. Are you sure, Josh? Yep, got one name for you. Peter, how many times did he deny Jesus Christ? Three times. Let me give you another one. Blaspheming Jesus is not an unforgivable sin. I know this is getting really uncomfortable, but I give you two reasons. One, what does Jesus say here? He says, I tell you the truth, all sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven. All of them. He doesn't speak about that one as being an exception. And in addition to that, Paul himself calls himself a blasphemer of God in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13. So that's not. Let me give you one more. Flippantly saying something against the Holy Spirit. A wayward word is not what this is talking about. And let me give you one last one. Even grieving, and I would, I would caution on this second piece, but I think even possibly a portion of quenching the Holy Spirit, which appears to be possible for believers. Even grieving or maybe quenching the Spirit is not the same as blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And those passages are Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, and 1 Thessalonians five nineteen. Again, I'll give you these later if you want them. So this is what it's not. So what is it? Let's go into the context. We will unpack it, and we'll kind of move on from there. Does this make sense where we're going tonight? Okay. I got time. We can do this. Here we go. Let's go. 
context begins not in verse 20, but let's kind of get up to speed. Chapter 1, Jesus shows up on the scene declaring that the kingdom of God is at hand. It is near, it is here. Repent and believe the good news. Immediately, (coughs) he gets into his ministry. He is healing. He is casting out demons. He is um, doing miracles on the Sabbath. And he begins to create stress between himself and the religious establishment. Jesus then, in chapter 3, appoints special disciples to come close to him that he will then appoint to go out and to teach and to cast out demons to be representatives of the kingdom of God in his time. And it is now, in verse 20, then, that we see the conflict that leads to this harsh word from Jesus. Verse 20 says this, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. By the way, this is every preacher's experience at a church potluck. Everyone's there. You're all talking. No eating. Here we go. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law, here we go, who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, the house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand his end has come. Let's just sort of pause there. Here's the context. Jesus is doing ministry, and the religious guys come down, and they've seen what he does. They have witnessed the power of God through him, and what do they call Jesus? Demon-possessed by Satan. For you uh, Bible geeks, let me give you a little fun factoid here. In your Bible, you may note that it's the word uh, Beelzebub or Beelzebul. What do you have? Beelzebul or bub? Bul, bub, bul, bub. Okay. We have two different renderings because there are different manuscripts with a different rendering. You say, what does this matter? It's fun. You'll want to know this. That's why. Here's what's so interesting about this. Beelzebul... Make sure I'm getting this correct. Beelzebul, the pagan god king is Baal, correct? You remember in the Old Testament, Baal or Baal is the proper pronunciation. Beelzebul means king of the gods or the king of the, of the false gods in the Jewish mind. So Beelzebub is the god king, hence the reference to Satan, the king of the demons, Correct. But what happened, by the time Jesus came along, first centuries, the Jewish people had taken that phrase from the Old Testament, Beelzebul, and they had begun to morph it to Beelzebub as a way of denigrating or disparaging Satan. Beelzebub, if you put a B at the end, not an L, it changes it from Lord or God of the gods to Lord of the dung heap. Or Lord of the Flies. You remember the book? It comes from this passage, that title. They were basically saying, he's not all that. He's just this stinky, uh, putrid God of poo. That, that is what they're saying. So when they call Jesus 
Possessed by God of the dung heap, it is an extra denigrating statement to him. Do you see what they're doing here? Deep disrespect. And so Jesus says, guys, come on over here. He pulls them aside and he says, let's talk about this. And he gives them a couple illustrations. First illustration we just read. He says, let's just use a little thing we like to call logic. If Satan fights himself, is he going to win? Well, yeah, he'll win against himself. He'll be knocked out on the floor. You can't win a war if you're fighting against yourself. Guys, it makes no sense for you to say that I am casting out demons by the power of a demon. That's ridiculous. Use your heads. And then he comes to this next example. Notice what he says here, verse 27. Excuse me, 26. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand, his end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob the, his house. Jesus is equating the devil or Satan with a strong man. The king of the demons. He's the strongest one, correct? He is equating this demon, Satan, with the strong man. And he says, listen, no one can tie up the strong man. Or no one can loot and plunder a strong man's house without first tying him up. Do you notice what he's saying? You're saying the king of the demons, right? He's the, he's the strong man. He's the strongest one. Well, question, who is the only one who is stronger, greater, more powerful than Satan himself, church? So who is Jesus equating himself to? God. Saying, look, fellas, you see me casting out demons. It ain't because I'm on the team of the chief demon. The only one who has power over the chief demon is God himself. Do you understand who you're calling a demon? This is what he's doing right now. He is articulating to them clarity and helping them see clearly. But you're, we're about to get to the crux of this issue here. Verse 28 and 29 is where it becomes clear. Jesus, verse 28, says, I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies men of men will be forgiven. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, one thing I think we need to be real careful on here. Some people will say, see, they already committed the unpardonable spirit er, uh, sin. But do you notice... He doesn't actually say that they have committed it, does he? I believe Jesus is doing what he does for all people. He warns us before it is too late. This is a warning. Maybe some of them have, but it doesn't specifically say that. Instead, he says, you've got to be careful here. Because there is a line that is too far. And so you say, well, what is that line? We've sort of danced around it. Sorry, I'm sorry. We have choreographed around it in here. Any of you grow up where you couldn't dance in church? We have dance parties in my house, and that's like the only place that you will ever see me do more than this. And that's all I got. We'll edit that from the film. <clears throat> now, notice what he says, though. Verse 28 
The literal translation, a more word-for-word translation, it's a little harder to render, but the literal translation is this. Jesus says, All things will be forgiven to the sons of men, the sins and the blasphemies, whatever they blaspheme. No exceptions. He doesn't say, well, there are some things. Well, no, you know, there's this. He says, all will be forgiven. So the key to understanding it is this. Verse 28 can be stated. The reason verse 28 can be stated so absolutely. And yet verse 29 can say there is a blasphemy or sin is because he's saying there is a sin beyond forgiveness. Let me put it this way. What does verse 28 mean? Here, here, here's just the way I wrote this down. Mark makes very clear, if we read through the gospel account, that forgiveness of sins comes from repentance, correct? So Mark chapter 1 and verse 4, John comes on the scene baptizing people and saying, Repent. Jesus, in verse 14 and 15, when he says the kingdom of God is near, he says, repent and believe the good news. Again, he's going to say this in chapter 4 and in chapter 6. Repentance is necessary for forgiveness, correct? This is why Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, that big moment where the church is born and Peter says to a crowd going, what do we do? We've messed up so badly. We killed Jesus. He says, here's what you do. Repent. Be baptized. Repent. Turn around. Stop going that way. Repent. Acknowledge you're going the wrong way. Repentance is necessary for forgiveness. In order for anyone to receive forgiveness of sins, they have to repent, to turn from sin, and trust God's grace. Go with me real quickly to 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. This is near the end of your Bibles. 1 John. I want you just to see what it says here. This is so beautiful. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 says this. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness if we confess our sins. In other words, if we say, I don't want to do this anymore. That's not who I am. The flesh is weak. My spirit is willing. God, help me. This is what Mark is going to say throughout in the narrative of Jesus' life. So why is blasphemy of the... So why is blaspheming the Holy Spirit beyond this. Here's why. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit puts you beyond forgiveness. Here's the key. Because it puts you beyond repentance. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is getting to that point where you say, I just don't care anymore. Because if I don't care... I ain't going to repent, am I? And what is it John says that if we repent, what will God do? He'll forgive you. But if you ever get to a point where you've just become so comfortable with your sin, where you've become so cozy with it, you just don't 
care. Here's basically what you've done. How many of you have a smoke alarm in your house? Any of you have a smoke alarm? I hope you all raise your hand on this one. What do your smoke alarms need to operate well? Batteries. How many of you have those demon-possessed smoke alarms that only go off at 2 a.m. with a little chirp? Burp, burp. I hate those. And now I've got a house where they somehow found a way to put them higher on the walls. My ladder won't reach them. So it's a bad deal, okay? Here's the thing. The Holy Spirit is your spiritual smoke detector. When smoke from sin begins to waft up, he goes... Stop what you're doing. It's going to destroy you. It's going to damage others. It's dishonoring God. It's, it's corrupting you. Don't do this. You're better than this. Remember, you were bought with a price, church. Quit it. Don't do it. But what happens if you don't get rid of the smoke? What does the smoke alarm continue to do? You have one of two options at this moment, don't you? One is to get rid of the smoke or get rid of the smoke alarm or just its batteries. I'm not going to listen to you anymore. And then it's all over. You go back to bed. You don't have to listen to the noise all while your house is turning to ash and flame. Do you see what Jesus is really talking about here, church? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not simply a momentary, I chose to do wrong. Oh, dear God, forgive me for what I've done. Oh, that is not what I want to be. That is not who I am. But it is the willful, ignoring, stiff-arming, telling the Holy Spirit, be quiet. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And the reason this is the sin that is the unforgivable sin is because when you get to the point where you won't listen to the Spirit, there is nothing else to turn you back to God. You say, where do you get that? Let's go to John chapter 16. I want you to see this because I think it's important for us to understand this. Now, there's good news coming here in about three minutes. Can you hang in for three minutes? Nope. Okay, here we go anyway. John 16. This is the place where Jesus is having his final large conversation with his followers before his arrest and execution. And he's comforting his followers. And one of the ways he comforts them is by saying, I will send to you the Holy Spirit. This is why, church, we want to know the third person of the Trinity. We want to not be ignorant, as Paul says. I don't want you to be ignorant of the Spirit, he says in 1 Corinthians. And so what, what we want to do is know who the Holy Spirit is because the Holy Spirit is the holy helper, the holy smoke alarm, among other things. And this is what Jesus says. This is John 16 and verse, let's start in verse 7 and we'll go through verse 11. I want you to see what he says here. <clears throat> but I tell you the truth. Again, does Jesus always tell the truth? So what is he doing here? 
All right, I want you to pay attention. This is important. I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor, uppercase C. Who is that church? Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will not come to you. By the way, I love that he's the Holy, that he's described as the counselor here because a counselor gives counsel. This is how you ought to live. Don't go this way, go this way. The counselor will not come to you if I don't go. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now notice what he does. This is one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit. When he comes, he will. What's that word? Prove. Or what's another word? Convict. He is the one who sounds the alarm. He will convict the world of guilt in regards to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you see me no longer. And in regards to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. He says here, Jesus our Savior says the Holy Spirit's job, one of them, is to convict us of sin. Have you ever had that sick feeling in the pit of your stomach because of something you did? I, I, I have. And i got to tell you, the thing that I, I... I hate the feeling, but I'm so glad that God loves me enough that I have that feeling. Does that make sense? Uh, you know that terrifying passage in Romans chapter 1 where Paul is talking about how God's invisible qualities... His attributes, just the, the world around us. We can see who He is, that there is a God. But He says there are those who have willfully ignored. They have suppressed the truth. They have unplugged the battery, so to speak. And so we're told three different times in chapter 1 of Romans that because of this, God gave them over gave them over, gave them over to what they wanted to do. The scary moment is when you say, I don't care anymore, I'm done. And so, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, if you want to write this down, here's maybe two examples, just two statements. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit is not a careless act, but a callous attitude. It is not a careless act, but it's a callous attitude. How many of you uh, uh, have callous, calluses? Any, any of you have calluses somewhere? You're like, no, those are bunions. Okay, fine, whatever. But you, you got those things, right? All right, a callus is where your skin has been rubbed so many times that it gets hard, it gets thick, it doesn't feel things like it once did. I have a friend who's a guitar player, and what he does, because if you start playing guitar for the first time, some of you know this, it hurts to push those strings down really tight all the way. And so he has this little spring-loaded piece, and it has a frame on each side. You squeeze it down, but the outside of it has these little bitty bumps all over it. So he's constantly pressing and pressing and it's poking and it's poking. And over time it creates calluses so he's able to play more comfortably. He no longer feels it anymore. 
It is not just a careless act. Church, if you've ever done something, you, oh no, am I saved? What have I done? What have I done? What have... It is the accuser who says you are lost. It's when it becomes callous where you don't care. That's when things are not good. Let me give you one more. It is also not... N-O-T. Not a... Or not denial, but we might just call it determined denial. It's not simply saying, you know, I'm just not sure I believe this. By the way, I have friends right now. Uh, My neighbor, uh, he does not believe in God. He is not a Christ follower. Uh, We've had them in our home. We love our neighbors, and I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will do what Jesus says the Holy Spirit will do and convict them and bring them to new life in Christ. This is what we ought to pray for all of our friends, right? That was not convincing, but okay. So it's not denial saying, I don't believe it. It's rather, I have seen and I have still just said, I reject whole cloth, all of it. I'm out. That's what he's talking about. So, are you ready for some good news? Okay, for the three of you who are, listen up. Here is the good news. I wish for the world I could grab so many of my brothers and sisters who wear guilt and worry like a lead-lined jacket and shake them enough to say, You do not have to live in fear or worry. The number of times that a good brother or sister, or let me just tell you where this hit home, was when my grandmother, God bless her, I may have shared this before, my grandmother is one of the most godly women I ever knew. She raised my daddy and my aunts. She loved me to Jesus. And I remember the year before she passed away, she'd been in failing health for some time. She'd been in an assisted living place. It was getting to the point where she was hallucinating some. I would come in and I'd visit with her and she'd ask me to get a teacup off the wall. And I'd look up there and I'd just play along and she'd go, it's too hot still. But in a moment of of clarity, I remember one conversation with her that was, was sort of heartbreaking. Not because I was scared for her salvation, but rather because she was scared for it. I said, Granny, are you excited? She said, I, I, just hope I, I just hope I've been good enough. I just hope I've been good enough. And here's the reality, church. If we were good enough, would Jesus needed to have come? No. Two questions you might want to jot down. And here are the two questions I always ask people when they say, have I... Have I gone too far? Am I, am I, is it all over for me? Two questions. Number one. Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Number one. Are you a believer in Jesus? Here's what I mean by that. Do you believe Jesus came? That he died for you? That he rose on the third day. That was the moment where he punched the teeth out of death and said, you will never, never have a fatal bite again. And that he lives for you and intercedes for you 
And it's the mediator for you to God. Do you believe that? Have you given your hope and your life to Jesus? Are you a believer, church? Yeah. If you are, amen. That's the first question I always ask. And then here's the second one. People go, yeah, I am, but I still, I still, I don't know. Here's the second question. Are you ready? Are you concerned about your salvation? Are you worried about it at time? I mean, are you? And of course, if I'm sitting with someone at a table and they have come to see me, why did they come to see me? They're worried or they're concerned about it. And then I share with them the words my dad shared with me when I was eight years old. He said, Joshua, if you are concerned with the state of your soul, The Holy Spirit has not let go of you yet. The Holy Spirit has not let go of you yet. You will not be concerned for your soul. You will not have this moment of wishing you had done better. You will not have those six cents in your stomach if you have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. So the two questions, are you a believer, church? And the answer, if you are, is yes and amen. And then the second thing is, do you still want to follow Jesus? Are you concerned? And if you are still concerned with following Jesus, does it still break your heart when you sin? Then rejoice in the fact that that, that, that is proof that the Holy Spirit smoke alarm is still at work in your life that He is still there to lovingly convict, to say, put out that fire, get out, open a window, let the smoke out, that you are not beyond forgiveness because you are still in a state in reach of repentance. This is the good news. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you that you hear us. That it's not out of our righteousness, but out of the righteousness of Christ imputed or given to us that we can come before you. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Helper, the Holy Fire Alarm who cautions, warms, prods, conjoles, annoys us into righteousness so that we may be more like Jesus. Oh, thank you for the Holy Spirit. And Father, I do pray that our body would never skirt sin and see how close we can get to the line, get as close to the fire. But at the first warning sign, we would quench the fire and not the Spirit. We love you and thank you for hearing us, for loving us, and for Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen.